Hi everyone, I'm Matt Wainer, co-owner of Cabinet Concepts by Design and board member of the Cabinet Makers Association. I'd like to welcome you to episode two of Pro Cabinet Maker, a monthly podcast produced by the CMA. Each month we'll chat with some of our outstanding industry professionals about the issues and challenges impacting their businesses, as well as success stories to inspire. My guest today is Tim Coleman with SCE Unlimited in the Chicagoland area. Tim founded his own closet organization company in 1988 and ran his business for nearly 30 years until he sold it in 2017. In October of 2020, Tim took the helm of SCE Unlimited. He believes that sharing knowledge and consistently seeking to learn new information is the only way people evolve and grow, and he endeavors daily to do both. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Hey, great to be here, Matt. Thanks so much. Oh, no problem. Well, let's get into it. Uh, You've been a small business owner for 30 plus years And you've learned over the years that bigger isn't always better. How being the right size company works best and how do you find a sweet spot in the right size company? I think that knowing what your limitations are as a leader is really the key to trying to figure out who you want to be. Some people just are not comfortable being large. They find their niche. Many years ago, I read a book by Peter Drucker about business and And he said that, generally speaking, a manager can't manage more than six direct reports. So if you use the six as an example, that would be, let's say you've got a business and you've got one designer or salesperson and you've got two installers and you got one or two guys in the shop. Now, all of a sudden you're at five or six people as quickly as that. And so how do you manage them is the biggest challenge. So uh, some people are great and have the ability to delegate and others aren't. So finding the right size is critical. And then that's the management piece. And then there's the financial piece. When you're bigger, you have more money out on the street, whether it's in inventory, whether it's in equipment, whether it's in building and office space, whether it's in trucks. So let's just say that you decide you're going to buy a business and the business is going to cost you $100,000. Well, can you finance that business? And then can you afford that monthly payment? Mm -hmm. And then you go, well, I need a new truck. And that truck payment's going to be $800. And then I need blank, blank, and blank. And before you know it, your expenses, just to turn the lights on and open the door, is pick a number, $20,000 a month. Well, what do you need to sell to pay for that $20,000 a month in addition to payroll and taxes and material? And so all of a sudden, trying to figure out who you are and who you want to be, that becomes the critical piece. And it's okay to be small. You know, you can make a lot of money at $400,000 a year in annual revenue. Sometimes you can make more money at $400,000 than you can at $1,400,000. You know, so it's okay. And just be comfortable with who you are and where you want to be. Sure. So I learned that you just recently sold uh, your business. How big did you grow your business before you sold it? At the high, we were at three and a half million. So we weren't huge, but I think three and a half million for me was a comfortable number. But between, let's say, a million five and two and a half million dollars was very uncomfortable. We were too big to be small and too small to be big. And Mm -hmm. it just, it was a very uncomfortable place because the amount of labor that you needed to do that kind of volume, the amount of space that you need in a warehouse to handle that kind of volume, 
the amount of money that you spend in marketing and advertising. So all of a sudden, the expenses are at a certain level and your revenue and your gross profit is just having a hard time paying for it all. I wrote an article earlier this year in regards to this is really you want to figure out, okay, if I'm at a million and a half and I want to go to 3 million, what has to happen? What are my expenses going to be? Stay at a million and a half making money or stay at 400,000 and making money. Keep socking it away. Keep saving that money for one year, two years, three years. Then you have enough money to get through what I call the black hole because you're going to go through that black hole. I grew up Catholic and in the Catholic faith, when I was growing up, this is going to show my age, they taught about a place called purgatory. Uh-huh. And purgatory is where you go when you really weren't bad enough to go to hell, but you're not quite good enough to go to heaven. You go to purgatory and you stay there for a while, paying for your sins. And that's the place that I felt that I was at for more longer than I should have been. And so you're better off if you do a, a job of planning and do it that way. The problem that I found with most of us that are smaller businesses is the business controls us. We don't control it. So we kind of just rely on, will the phone ring? Will anybody walk in the door? And if somebody walks in the door, we sell them something. And if the phone rings, we go meet them and try to sell them something. But it's not in our control. I had a friend of mine who was a remodeling contractor, and he did a lot of things himself. He did his own HVAC, and he did his own plumbing, and he was about $400,000 a year. And at that time, this was a long time ago, he made $65,000 in income, and he was really happy with that. And he's like, I'm going to go from 400 to a million. And when he got to a million, he made $32,000. He's like, I don't understand it. And it's all of those expenses in between. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to cut back. I go, well, how are you going to cut back? He goes, I don't know. I go, well, the way to cut back is you start raising your prices and people will start saying no. And the jobs that you do get, there'll be a higher margin. And that's how he was able to bring his business back down to about $500,000, which is where he was comfortable. And those jobs made more money. I mean, it's really easy to increase sales if you lower your price below cost. Mm-hmm. You know, so if any of you have any designers out there or any salespeople out there and you find one of them is really selling a lot, be careful because they might be selling the margins too low. And then you you don't realize it until the job comes in and the job's all done. You look at your numbers, you're like, what just happened? One of the best things that I shouldn't say one of the best. One good thing that I did was I was able to categorize our job costing profit by job by product line and by salesperson and designer and by installer. So I could look at my jobs and sort them by a salesperson and go, oh, well, this salesperson is generally on average giving us this gross profit. Or I could do it by an installer. Oh, this installer gives us this gross profit. And it's interesting to find out which product lines make you the most profit, which designers and salespeople make you the most profit, and which installers make you the most profit. And then it's a different decision. That's you know, really interesting how you do, how, how did you do that? Was it with software, spreadsheets? Yeah, it, it's just how you set up your books. So QuickBooks is a real common accounting program. Mm-hmm. So Matt, did, which accounting program do you use in your business? The, the same, QuickBooks, yes. Yeah. So all you have to do is just set your books up. So when you do your job costing, you know, like you have your labor in there, mm-hmm. do your labor by installer. So if you say, I've got Jimmy and Jimmy's one of my installers, 
when you put your job cost in there, it's Jimmy's job cost. And you mm-hmm. start to be able to sort by those categories. And then those categories tell you what's good. I've got an installer on wire shelving. We do wire shelving for closets, by the way. Mm-hmm. And wire shelving is a low ticket item. Average sales about $450. I pay him piecework. So we pay so much per foot. And he admittedly takes longer to do a job. And he's okay with it compared to maybe some of our other installers. And the reason he's okay with it is in his mind, if he takes his time and he moves slower, he doesn't ever have to go back to a job versus the guys that go faster. They might have go backs. They might have a service Mm -hmm. call. Mm -hmm. And so he's running his own little business, just like you and I are. I remember we started to add, um, we do both floor mount closet systems and suspended wall mount systems Mm -hmm. and the suspended wall mount system. You hang a rail on the wall, you screw the rail to the studs, and then you hang it on brackets. Mm -hmm. And I started to put cleat underneath the bottom of all of our drawer units. And that cleat, A, costs more money because it's material and B, it takes more time. But to me, it was worth it because in my mind, I had too many drawer failures because the way that the drawer was sagging that rail over the course of years, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't within the first year. It was always like six years down the road. But I said, you know what? That cleat is worth it to me to avoid that problem. Same thing with pantries. I stopped doing suspended systems in pantries because everything's too heavy. Mm-hmm. I want in a pantry, I want everything to be on the floor. And anyway, yeah. we're getting off topic. Sorry, Matt. Sure. No, it's, it's good information. I love talking about it. But back to the money part of it, you've, you've written uh, about the seven benefits of being a small business. And one of them is easy cash management review. If we can talk a little bit more about that, particularly as it relates to a budget versus forecast. And it's a really timely subject since we're closing out the year and preparing for 2023 coming up. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the budget versus a forecast? Sure. So again, being a small business, you're wearing a lot of hats. So Mm -hmm. you're probably still in design and sales, or you're still in manufacturing, or you might still go out on an installation. You might be also the one that looks at the trucks and finds out if they need an oil change. And so you're wearing a lot of hats and you hear either through the television or you hear Wall Street or you hear other business owners and they say, you got to have a budget or you should have a forecast. And I remember hearing these things and I just was like, whatever, you know, I I don't have time. I don't even know what it is. I'm not going to do it. I read something about darts. And when I was a kid, I played darts. And so the goal in darts is to always try to get the highest score. And so you have to be accurate in throwing a dart at the target that you choose. And the analogy was, well, if you don't have a target, how do you know if you hit it? And so it it just struck me that a budget or a forecast has similar traits to it. And so The first thing I did is, well, I'm going to set a goal. And the goal is I want to do a million dollars in a year. That's my goal. Okay, well, how do I go about doing that? Well, do I take a million dollars and divide it by 12? Well, I know that January, February tends to be slower. I know that April tends to be busier. May tends to be slower. June might be slow, but then July and August and September get busy. And does that mean that some months it might be $50,000 and other months it's going to be 110 or 120,000 a month? And so slowly, my goals became my forecast. And a forecast is 
you're forecasting your revenue. That's the forecast. You're predicting what your revenue is. It becomes your goal or your target. And so if you literally take your QuickBooks and you just print out your financials on a monthly basis, you mm-hmm. can just look and you go, okay, well, here's my revenue for the month of January. Here's my revenue for the month of February. And you do that. I put it into an Excel spreadsheet because I could do a lot more in an Excel spreadsheet. And let's just say that the goal is to do a million dollars and you have right now you would have 11 months worth of revenue and you go, okay, well, let's pick a number for December and and round it out. I think I'm going to do this much in December. Mm -hmm. Then just find out what percentage each month represents to the whole. So as an example, if you say you're going to do a million dollars and you take a million and divide it by 12, it's $83,000. But January, you did 50, February, you did 45. But by the end of the year, you're at a million. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Well, that becomes a percentage of the whole. And so now you go, well, I have to forecast next year. So you take January through December as a percentage and you go, well, next year, I want to do a million three. I want a 30% growth. So I'm going to do a million three. You take the million three, take your percentage by month because you're already taking your the seasonality out of the business. January, February tends to be slower. So you take the seasonality and you apply it to that 1.3 million. And now you know what your target is for each month. Mm-hmm. And that becomes your forecast. Now, you know your expenses. You know what your rent is or your mortgages. You know what your truck payment is. You know what if you bought any equipment on lease. So you plug all of that into your your spreadsheet for your expenses, and that becomes your budget. Mm -hmm. So the budget is your expenses. Your forecast is your revenue. And hopefully, there's more money left at the end of the month for you to be able to call profit. Mm -hmm. And so now, all of a sudden, you're looking at, I've got my revenue, I've got my budget, and guaranteed some months are going to lose money. Because if you only do 50,000, but you were expected to do 83,000, you know, at a million dollars, you go, there's going to be a shortfall. And so now all of a sudden, you can predict what the future holds for you in terms of knowing which months are going to be high and which months are going to be low. So as an example, for whatever reason, Uh, the fourth quarter. So that'd be October, November, and December. I was always busy. People wanted to do stuff before Thanksgiving or before Christmas. I would, every year I would sell Christmas presents where we'd wrap up a jewelry tray and, and they would get a gift certificate for a closet or, I mean, just whatever. And so now all of a sudden our fourth quarter was pretty good. Well, I knew my January and February was going to be slower. So I wouldn't spend the money at the end of the year like a lot of businesses do. They want to spend the money to get the P&L to zero so they don't have to pay any taxes, right? You know, one way to do that is you take it all out as income to yourself, and then you put it back in as a loan to yourself in January, and you could do that. But my point is, if you know those things, I would spend the money in November and December in advertising and marketing. So that way in January and February, you're generating more leads or you're trying to generate more leads. So it's not as bad. And Mm -hmm. so now all of a sudden you start acting in advance of what the budget is projecting for you. And then the next critical piece is that that forecast, that budget has to be a living, breathing document every month. The analogy that I make is if you are in a business that has to do manufacturing and installation, you have to have a production schedule and you have to have an installation schedule. 
Mm -hmm. Hi, Mrs. Smith. We're going to be at your house on the 15th, 16th, and 17th. Okay. Well, you've got a commitment. You need to make the same commitment to running your business to look at your financials. I'm going to have all of my financials and I'm going to look at them on the 10th of every month, the 15th of every month. And literally, I have a sign on my door that says, do not disturb. And that's when I start number crunching and looking at everything. Mm -hmm. And you take your actual numbers and you insert them into your forecast and budget. So let's just use the, that example of $50,000 in January. January comes and you did $52,000. You put that in your forecast with your actual numbers. And now you're looking at the rest of the year and you're like, all right, we're ahead of schedule. This is great. But if it was 48,000 and not 52, what does that do? What does that do to my February? What does that do to my March? What does that do to my April? It's going to take me longer to catch up. Or what if you did $62,000 in January? Now you're $12,000 more than projection. Do you go, well, let's just sit tight because February might not be that great. Well, now February comes along and you're going to do 50 and you do 52. Now you're 14 up going into March. You're like, you know what? Let's do a little bit more advertising. Let's hand out bonuses at the end of the quarter. Let's buy another truck or increase our inventory or buy in case quantities, right? Mm -hmm. Or wait a minute, leads are coming in. We're going to need another salesperson. It's going to take 90 days to ramp them up to speed. Now is the time to do it. We got the extra cash. But if you don't make that budget or that forecast a living, breathing document, then it doesn't really do you any good. Right. How long does it take you to put a budget and a forecast together? I mean, how long do you typically spend for a company that you just spoke about that was your size? So, and, and I mean this in all sincerity, if you just take 15 minutes and print out your, what did you do last year? Or what did you do this year? Print it out. And you go, well, what do I want to do next year? And you just kind of look at it and you go, well, I think I'm going to do blank. At least it's something, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at your numbers every month and you even just allow two hours or three hours to look at and analyze, and then what I would do is every quarter, I take an, a whole day. And when I was in a smaller building, and I don't know if it happens to you, Matt, at all, but it happens to me all the time, no matter what, throughout the course of the day, somebody's going to walk into my office, somebody's going to call me on my cell phone, and they're going to ask a question. Mm -hmm. The question can be as simple as, hey, where did we see those tie racks? I can't find them in the shop. Or, hey, Philip's order got back ordered. What do we do? Mm -hmm. Or Mrs. Smith called and she's not going to be ready for install. All right. I mean, we, we get those. Yep. So what I did is I went to the library. And at the library, it's really quiet. Everybody leaves you alone. And they have these big, huge tables. And I would bring all of my work to the table. I would spread it out on the table and I would be left alone for an entire day. And I had more fun trying to figure out how to make all the numbers work. Because if you said, let's use 2% as an example, 2% of a million dollars is $20,000. And you go, I'm going to spend 2% on advertising every year, $20,000. Okay, well, it's not like you have $20,000 sitting in a separate checking account that you could write checks out of for marketing and advertising. It's kind of a buildup. Mm -hmm. So in January, if you have $50,000, you actually lost money. You probably lost money. So you go, well, okay, I don't really have a lot of money to spend in January because I only did $50,000. So how am I going to cover that? And those are all of the creative ways to try to figure out what's the best time to spend money. 
one of the common forms of marketing and advertising years ago used to be to do home shows mm-hmm. or to do the the trade shows. Have you ever participated in one of those, Matt? My wife makes me do it every year. It's uh, we call okay. It you use the word home. make. <laughs> Exactly. She's our marketing uh, director. So yeah, she's the one that pushes to always be selling. Right. ABC. Yeah. And so you have to know, all right, well, if that home show is going to be in March, I know that the booth is going to cost $2,000. I know that I'm going to spend money on building the booth or repairing the booth that I used last year. I've got to probably pay somebody to go install it. I've got to pay somebody to break it down. And mm-hmm. I might have to pay somebody to work it because I'm not going to do it my whole weekend myself. Mm-hmm. So what are all of those costs? Well, let's just say that out of the gate, it's six grand you're going to spend on that by the time you pay for all of that. Well, if it's in March and you just lost money in January and February, where's that $6,000 coming from? Do you call them on the phone in November and December and say, hey, I got some extra cash. I know it's going to cost me $2,000 for the booth. Can I get it for $1,800 if I pay you now? And they'll be like, great, you're going to pay it early. I'll give you money off. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a way to get money out of your checkbook for those reasons. The Cabinet Makers Association helps shops grow, and our shared benefits include feedback and advice from peers, news about industry innovation and events, participation in leadership teams, and early awareness of both design and equipment trends. We also work together to acknowledge and promote the professional accomplishments of our fellow members and participate in programs and publications designed exclusively for small shop owners. The CMA will reach a major milestone this coming March when we celebrate two and a half decades of service to the industry. The 25th Anniversary National Conference takes place March 8th through the 10th at the Renaissance Hotel in downtown Nashville. The agenda is rich with enticing speakers, local plant tours, and plenty of networking opportunities. Over the past quarter of a century, the CMA has grown to include hundreds of small to medium-sized cabinet, millwork, and furniture shops across the U.S. and Canada. When wood shops come together as a group, each one becomes stronger. Learn more at cabinetmakers.org. You mentioned earlier, I believe, that just a couple hours a month, is that all the time that you dedicate? to uh, looking at the budget and forecast? So I typically dedicate one morning, which for me tends to be from like six to 11, and then I'll break for lunch. But you don't have to spend a lot of time. I enjoy it. What I've learned is most people that own a small business or that manage a small business, they are really good at maybe one thing, but they're not good at everything. So if you're not good at numbers, that's okay. But you as the owner or the manager, have to spend some time doing that. Mm -hmm. I enjoy spreadsheets. I enjoy the numbers. I kind of treat it almost like a game, you know, where how do we do this and and tweak it to make it uh, more understandable, more relatable. In the, the idea of how much time is spent working on everything, I just went through this morning uh, it was about 8.30. I called into my office, the guy who was in charge of our uh, closet laminate production and my production manager. And I asked a question about inventory and parts. So that's screws and anchors and all the hardware that's needed, right? Mm-hmm. And they asked me a question back and I said, well, here's the reason why. We are not allocating hardware to our jobs for job costing. 
Now, how do we educate them so that way they have a better understanding of cost and how it impacts our budget? So I went through, took me six minutes to explain how the, the hardware cost impacts our profitability as a company. Sure. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I spent time working on the budget of the forecast, but I was. Mm-hmm. I was totally doing that because one of the questions is, what percentage of your material cost is hardware? You know what wire shelving is, right? Um, if you sure. do closets, yeah. wire shelving. So everybody in the industry says, well, I pay $1.50 a foot for wire shelving. Well, well yeah, but you also have to pay for the hardware. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, well, the hardware is cheap. It's, you know, three cents a piece or two cents or one cent. Okay, well, you want to know the real, the real number? The real number is that about 25% of your material cost is hardware. 25%. That's a big number in That's your material big. cost. How, how do you track that then? I mean, if it's such a small part, and I assume you got buy-ins from your employees to start tracking it a little better. Sure. So the education piece is always about helping your team understand how the little decisions that they make impact. In wire shelving, one of my biggest complaints are the rubber end caps that go on to cover the raw edge, yeah. right? Because they're like, I'm making up a number, but I think it's like three-tenths of a cent. Right. Each you pick or them up it's as ridiculous. you walk through the shop as you see them? <laughs> oh, all the time. I can walk in a house and see them. So uh-huh. a million years ago, I was getting really honked off at that. And so I had quarters, dimes, and nickels in my pocket. We uh-huh. were in new construction. I threw them on the floor, and then I just waited. And sure enough, the installer picked it up. Yep. And I went, okay, that was 16 end caps. But when you do your inventory, we do inventory every month. And so I've narrowed it down to case quantity. So if you got a case of something and that case weighs six pounds, it's a quarter of a case, a half a case, three quarters of a case, or a full case. Okay. And so you, you look, okay, it gives you a number, right? From a cost standpoint, eventually you job cost everything out. And when you job cost it out, It allows you to make better decisions. The industry, and I'll just say the construction industry and our whole economy for 2023 is that we're going to be in a slowdown. You know, things Mm -hmm. are going to be a little bit slower. Well, all right. How do you survive? Well, chances are you're going to probably have to lower your prices a little bit if you want to maintain your sales volume. Well, how do you know really where you could lower your prices to make up for it if you don't know your costs? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say, well, did you make money last year? Uh, well, you know, the, the old time guys will be like, well, I'd look at my taxes. And if I made money at the end of the year, then I know I was profitable. Mm-hmm. Okay. But by then it's too late. Right. How many people could be out of business and they just don't know it because their cash flow hasn't caught up? Well, how, how do you track your inventory? Is it through QuickBooks or do you have a separate software program? So when I had my company, it was through QuickBooks. The company that I took over, they have a proprietary piece of software, but literally we do inventory every month. We've got it down to about four hours. It's two people. There's worksheets, you know, so you list all of your parts and you just go through the shop and it's like, how many you got? Mm -hmm. And here's a funny story. So in wire shelving, and I use that because it's just, everybody understands what it is, but we were starting to prep our wire shelving three weeks out. So we would have three weeks worth of work leaning against the wall. Mm -hmm. And so the theory of that was we do better inventory control if we allow only so much wire to go to an installer per house. So that was the idea. All right. We got three weeks worth. 
We do our inventory that month. Well, guess what? None of that wire was in our inventory account because we were only counting stock. And that was really what's called work in progress. Right. But we didn't count that inventory. It wasn't counted anywhere. Well, it took me two and a half months to figure out, oh my God, we did that for wire. We did that for mirrors. We did that for shower doors. We did that for laminate. Mm -hmm. I was missing almost $12,000 worth of inventory that when you're doing your inventory, the way it works is opening balance. Okay. I had a hundred thousand dollars in inventory. I bought $60,000 worth of inventory this year and our ending inventory is $98,000. Oh, so guess what? 160 was in. I took 98 out. That means I spent 62,000 in inventory. Mm-hmm. Well, really, I only spent 50,000 because I missed $12,000. Right. You know, yeah. and so that's how we do our inventory. It's in QuickBooks. If you mm-hmm. have a cabinet shop and you're making everything, you're buying your material either in uh, sticks, lengths, or you're buying it in sheets. Mm-hmm. So if you're buying it that way, and hopefully you have some system to know that the cost of that material this month versus the cost of the material last month is gone up or down, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a question. Matt, if you sell a job today, when's the soonest you can install it? Oh, gosh. Um, Eight weeks? No, May. So five months. Okay, five, five months. This is a perfect question. Yeah. You sell a job today. What happens when material goes up in March? Right. Because you're not going to make that job today. You're going to make that job in April. So guess what? From a management standpoint, if you bid that job today, you have two choices in 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 an environment that we're in today, which has settled down a little bit. But, you know, go back a year. How crazy were our prices, right? Oh, it's absolutely nuts. It was insane. So from a business standpoint, when you sell a job, you have two choices. You either build in an escalation clause that material could go up if you could prove it. Mm-hmm. To your customers and say, sorry, but you know, material's been going crazy. Or you buy that material right then and there. It mm-hmm. sits in your warehouse, but at least you know your cost was fixed. Right. But you tend not to buy it because you don't have the space for all of it, right? So now, now you're trapped with, okay, if I buy it and I ask my supplier to hold it, some will do that. Some will do that. You go, here's a PO. I need you to hold it for uh, until I release it in April. And they'll be like, fine. Or they might charge you a small fee. But it might be better to do that than to risk it in April. And you go, well, I just got hit with a 12% price increase. Because that 12% cost mm-hmm. literally comes out of your pocket. Yeah, bottom line. Yep. Right. Very interesting. Well, we're wrapping up here quickly. I'm super excited because I know you're speaking at the CMA's Nashville conference this March. And it's a topic that my wife has seen you speak at. Can you talk about the magic numbers that you're going to Oh, my God. So over the years, what happened to me was I didn't know anything about business. I mean, like, I didn't know anything, really. I just did what everybody else said. Take your material, double the price, and sell it for that. That's like how I started. I had no idea. But as my company evolved and as I evolved as a person, I read a bunch of books I talked to people that had businesses that were older than mine or bigger than mine. And I was very open-minded. I was humble. And what I learned is there are certain things that you should pay attention to in your business. Then it became a matter of how do I track that? How do I watch that? And what does that mean? And so I created my little magic spreadsheet of uh, what I ended up calling my magic numbers. What are the items that affect my business? 
And so the presentation that we're going to be doing at the CMA in Nashville in March, and if you could get to Nashville, not only is it a great town, but the lineup of speakers, if you really are genuine about your business and you want to do a better job and make more money, this is the time to do it because the value, certainly I think speakers and the sessions that are given is is of high value, but uh, the value is really more of who you meet, who you meet at a lunch, who you meet at the bar, who you meet sitting next to you in one of the sessions and exchange business cards and call them up. I went to a closet expo and I don't know, this could have been 15 years ago. And one of the guys that was there, he was a window blind company. He did window blinds and he was thinking of getting in the closet business. And I said, I'll help you with the closet business if you help me with the window blind business. And over the next two years, he developed the closet business on his end. And I became a Hunter Douglas dealer and I started doing window blinds. And if it wasn't for that connection that we made, I would have made bad mistakes and he would have made bad decisions because we helped each other avoid the pitfalls. So reach out, bring a ton of business cards, hand them out. So do that at CMA. It's definitely worth it. The magic numbers, you'll leave that session and I could email you a spreadsheet I put together that allows you to plug in your own numbers and make your own magic numbers of what what are the information that you want to keep track of or you want to learn to help you run your business better. Um, In the closet business, one of my fun topics is a tie rack. How much do you sell a tie rack for? And what is the impact of that over the course of a year? It's dramatic. Mm -hmm. And so you could make such little decisions if you know it in advance. So I encourage everybody to come out to CMA. Yep, I'm going to 100% agree with you that I feel that the best next to the speakers and, and gaining some personal growth, but the best thing is talking to your fellow cabinet and closet makers. I think it's well worth a trip to Nashville if anybody can make it. I'm looking forward to it, Tim. I think it's really going to be exciting. Thanks again for joining us, Tim. And thanks to everyone for listening in this episode of Pro Cabinet Maker. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact the woodworking industry. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or whatever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you like more information about Cabinet Makers Association, be sure to visit us online at cabinetmakers.org. We'll see you next time.